Listener Production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Spies. Welcome to On Her Game. Shana Jack is a remarkable, courageous and strong woman. The swimmer became a household name almost overnight, but not for the qualities I just stated, nor for her incredible swimming ability and prodigious talent, but for something she never wanted or ever thought would happen to her. In 2019, the Commonwealth Games gold medalist was told that she had tested positive to a banned substance. It was at that point her whole world fell apart and so started the biggest fight of her life. The public and media reaction was brutal and the spotlight relentless. With her dream, career and reputation on the line, Shana fought her case and was successful at having her punishment halved. But the expert report finding the substance in her system was so minute it wouldn't have had an impact on her performance. And yet the case was appealed and Shana again had to fight it in court and again the case was found in her favour. Shana has received high-profile support from the US anti-doping agency CEO and her case has raised significant questions about the anti-doping system and whether it's unfairly trapping and targeting innocent athletes. But more importantly, now Shana is free to swim, free to compete and free to chase her dreams. The saga hasn't drained her fight, it's intensified her purpose. And for Shana, it all started as a little girl growing up in Queensland. I was always a very outgoing, bubbly, happy person that, you know, always took on challenges. Um, I do have three brothers, so they definitely tested me as I was growing up. I think they were the funniest story. (laughs) I think my parents tell me, uh, um, my brothers and I used to race our bikes like down the driveway of our house. And they said like one day I was like so competitive that I wanted to win, but I went past them and I turned in in front of them and they just rode straight (laughs) over me. And uh, I just think like this is 100% me, like this is what I do. I will win, but, you know, sometimes I have to get hit down as as well. Um, So, no, I was always someone that, you know, tried a lot of different things as I was growing up and um, was really competitive, Um, but I've always had a passion for swimming and, and I think that started from, I think the age of about 16 months, I think mum would say, um, when I just did learn to swim with my brothers and continued on from there. Were they older brothers? I have two older brothers and one younger brother. Wow. Okay, cool. And no sisters? No sisters. Yeah, (laughs) So 16 months swimming. um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, was there signs early that the water was for you? Yeah, my mum would always talk about how so the reason I actually got in the water was, um, you know, I would be watching my brothers do their learn to swim and they could tell I was quite fidgety watching and not being a part of <laughs> what my brothers are doing. I guess that's just me. I don't like to be left out. Um, so they actually put me in the water and just, you know, put me on my back and, you know, looked to see how I would go. And I didn't cry. I guess most babies would. Mm. Um, and I just kind of loved being in the water and, and even at home, like our, um, old house that we lived in growing up was, you know, had a pool and everything. So we were constantly in the pool, you know, on our weekends, we had club training during the week when we were younger at our school, you know, you could kind of just never keep me out of the water, to be honest. Mm. Were there any other sports for you growing up or was it just focused solely on swimming? Um, I did do dance. So I did like cheerleading and aerobics <laughs> and, and all these different things. Um, I did do school sports. So I did play soccer when I was younger again, cause my brothers did it. Um, <laughs> I, I actually have a photo of me and my brother on the exact same team, both on, like I'm on the ball and he's next to me and I've got my elbow in his face, um, <laughs> even though we're on the same team. <laughs> so, so again, I guess there's like competitive <laughs> sides that I never wanted to share, like 
the ball. Um, so individual sport was definitely for me because team sport probably wasn't the direction I was going to go down. Um, didn't like to share the spotlight. Not if you like that to your teammates, yeah. No, exactly. I think I was a bit harsh. Um, but no, I did I did play soccer and I, I did do like netball and basketball at school. But, you know, I always um, did swimming in school and out of school as a choice, um, which continued on from a young age until now. Can you remember when swimming started to become serious for you? And what did serious look like? Yeah, I think that decision to become serious was when I decided that every other sport was like a risk take. Um, you know, potentially mm-hmm. you could get injured or something like that. So I think it was around like 12. Um, I decided that I wouldn't be doing dance anymore, which was the thing that I actually really, really enjoyed. And, and I was quite good at it with my mm. squad. We were national champions. <laughs> so, <Nice>. we, <laughs> so, you know, I played that one. But Again, um, competitive. Again, exactly. want to do everything at the top. I love it. Yes. <laughs> do everything at the best level, that's for sure. Um, and so, yeah, I decided to put that aside and completely focus on swimming from the age of 12. And, and mm. then it was the next year after that that I actually made my first overseas team. So I believe it was called the Queensland A team where we traveled to Indianapolis and I was 13 years old going over at my parents. So it was a massive step, but definitely an exciting one. So when you're 12, 13, you decide for things to get serious. What do trainings look like? Like how intense is that? How many kilometers or how many, how long each day and how many sessions are you doing? So my week basically looked like, and I guess in the end it was also my parents' week because my parents were the ones dropping Uh, to and from training. So I was still at school, um, obviously, from 13 years old. So my dad would take us in the morning at 4.30 in the morning to training. Uh, We'd train for two hours and then get picked up by mum. Mum would then drop us at school and then mum would pick us up from school, take us directly to the pool. We'd train again for about two hours, get picked up from there, and go home and, and get home probably about seven o'clock at night, which then obviously just trying to <laughs> just trying to get to bed to be honest. Yeah. Um, so they didn't leave a lot of time for just your recreational activities or chatting with friends or you know TV time or anything like that. But you know my brothers were also quite committed um, during school as well, so we all had that same passion. We all did it together, mm. so we enjoyed that and made it work, but it was a lot of hours in the pool and a lot of staring at that black line every day, every week. Um, but we definitely loved it. Dean Boxall, he became your coach when you were, he first saw you when you were 13 and he described you as prodigious talent at that (laughs) age. Um, did you have an idea about how good you were and were you thinking then this is it? I want to do this. I want to go to the Olympics. I want to be a swim swimmer. Yeah, I actually thought I wanted to be a swimmer from the age of 10. So even before I kind of made that decision to become, you know, competitive and and actually fully commit, um, at 10 I met Libby Trickett. And for a 10-year-old, you're kind of like all like, woo, woohoo, there's someone exciting and famous. Um, And it was kind of like that, but it was the fact that the way she made me feel was what what drove me to her. And she, you know, she was such a humble person down to earth, made me feel so special, special as a 10 year old. And I thought, well, that's the kind of person I wanted to be. And reflecting on her being an athlete and the way that she could actually do that through being an athlete, I wanted to do that um, growing up. So I just always wanted to kind of be someone that, you know, I had young people looking up to me or something mm. like that. And that was kind of what I aspired to through my career. But then in 2000 and 
2012, when I was 13, I met Dean Boxall, um, and he was a psycho back then as he is now. I remember the first. We <laughs> should say, if you're not familiar was, with the name of Dean Boxall, uh, go back Google and it. yeah, Google it and have a look um, at when Ariane Titmus won gold at yes. Tokyo. <laughs> so, Dean, the first impression I got of Dean was we picked up the car from, I believe it was the airport in Indianapolis, and <laughs> he drove on the wrong side of the road. And like we're all sitting in this car going, oh my God. Because um, he just, I guess, he completely forgot as he's driven out onto the street that we were in America and it's on the other side of the road. So and how many kids in the car, car at that stage? Look, there was different, it was adults too, and they didn't help either. But it, uh, I think it was about maybe five of us in there all screaming. And it was the funniest thing that we probably experienced. Um, but then it was a continued on from then. You know, he kind of just opened up the whole trip. He was always singing, he was always dancing. And for me, he was actually my coach on that trip. So that's how we kind of, you know, built, started that good relationship mm. and, and, and um, alignment, I guess, in what we both wanted. Um, he kind of met me as this 13 year old, just loving swimming and just loving competition and he loved the fact that he could go pick that fight for me and do that before <laughs> the race so I think you know we even had the a memory of we were versing the Canadians in a four by 200 freestyle I believe it was and um, he wanted us to win obviously so he went over to the Canadians and picked a fight before the race <laughs> and he was like you know he's like well the Australians are going to beat you you guys have no chance you know they've got this in the bag and he came back and told us that he's now picked a fight with them so we've now got to prove him right um so no pressure at all but it was it was always wow. fun and yeah he definitely you know brought a lot of that joy could to backfire the sport, that's for sure. massively on him couldn't it like really <laughs> um, he literally look, did that it would be embarrassing if um, <laughs> if we didn't win and he'd just gone and been like, you know, Australia is better than uh, Canada. But um, look, we did we did beat them, so that was the main thing. Oh, wow. Some interesting um, tactics that, that Dean has. I love that. That's a great <laughs> insight into him. Um, 2017, you went to the World Champs. You won four medals. That was one of your big events as well. But 2018 was when it really all started to happen, wasn't it? You're part of the four by 100 metre freestyle women's team, which is just like has for Australians that just has such an illustrious and wonderful history. But you're in on the Gold Coast, your first major real international event. You've been to the World Champs before, I know that, but it's your first, you know, Olympics or Commonwealth Games. Like it's a Mm. big event in your own backyard, friends and family, (laughs) and you're alongside these champion women in your own team as well what was going through your mind during that race yeah it was probably one of the most nerve-wracking races I've ever done um (laughs) you know obviously as you said there was family in the crowd my friends were in the crowd my partner was in the crowd so it was all really really exciting and we kind of you know in the relay team you always know that you're going up with amazing women and you know that you know you're going to back each other no matter what and do the best you can for each other. And that's kind of how I always went into those events, knowing that I had such amazing group of women behind me. Um, we were all in the mastering room kind of keeping each other relaxed and we kind of prepared for these kind of meets. Like we've always kind of, we've we've gotten together before as a group of Relay girls before in the past and talked about what tactics work for each other and what we need as support in the marshalling room. So I remember Bronte, she was massaging my shoulders. Um, <laughs> we're all like giving each other hugs and stuff and giving that, you know, affirmations of support, which um, really, really helped me because I was the youngest on the team and standing up there with Kate. 
Yes, I was. Um, and I was obviously with Kate and Bronte Campbell and Anne McKeon and so such inspirational <laughs> women to be standing by them and leading them off um, was really, really yeah. scary. But I knew they had my back and I knew that I just had to do what I had to do and race that race. And none of us had predicted a world record. Um, we obviously were always striving for that gold, but no one had even mentioned a world record until I was standing behind the blocks and I was talking to Bronte and she was like, Shana, look at the board and there's this red line and Kate is over it and I just started screaming. <laughs> Unbelievable. And a gold in your home at Commonwealth Games when you're just a teenager alongside Kate mm. Bronte Campbell and Emma McKeon. What an, what an absolute moment. Did you think then this is it? This is this is me. This is what this is what I can do. I'm just at the start of my career. What was going through your head? You're like, this is all beginning. It's all falling into place. Yeah, for me, it was kind of like onwards and upwards from here. Um, I just <laughs> knew that I was just continuing every race that I did. I was continuing to build confidence. I was continuing to, I guess, get a bit more into my rhythm of how I race things and stop kind of race comparing myself to other athletes. And you kind of just get into a position where you're like, this is how I do it. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to keep getting better and better and better. Um, and that was kind of how I was feeling going into even 2019. Like I knew I was on top of my game and I knew that I was training harder than ever, working harder than ever. And I was as focused as ever. So, you know, I was on top of the world going into 2019 and, um, it would have been an amazing meet, especially for those relay teams as well. If I had had the honor of being part of those, um, so it would have been an amazing event and I was really proud of how they did without me because um, they, they really did represent Australia well. Well, take me then, 2019, to the World Championships. <laughs> take me to the point when you first received the news. Um, yeah, I was, um, I was out shopping with my friend. We were actually getting um, new suitcases because we were lugging around about 30 kilos um, and our backs were getting quite sore walking to and from places with our luggage. Um, and we knew that going into, you know, South Korea that we had to make sure that we weren't getting sore or anything like that. So we're actually looking for a carry-on suitcase. <laughs> that was my goal that day. And I guess I was completely oblivious to what was about to happen because I was having fun, doing what I do usually on my trips. And I just got a phone call from Swimming Australia and they just said, hey, you've got to come back to the hotel. Um, instantly I kind of thought that I had a drug test, um, cause that's probably the only reason you'd be called back immediately mm -hmm. to the hotel is that the drug testers have turned up to test you. Um, so I just, I actually ran back to the hotel. So it was probably like a kilometer away, I believe. And one of the Swimming Australia staff met me and just said, Hey, we've got to go up to the head coach's room. And when they say something like that, for me, I instantly thought, okay, well that means something's happening at home. Um, mm. you know, they've got news to tell me about family, friends, something's happened. And, um, that's obviously important for the head coach to deliver that news. Um, so that was kind of what was happening. You know, my heart was pounding. I, you know, felt my palms mm. sweating because I just could feel that I thought I was going to get news about my family. So I was a bit panicked, I guess. And then, yeah, I walked into the room and, and the head coach, Jarko, he said that Asada had called and that he hadn't been told anything in regards to what it was about. So, you know, I started to, you know, I could feel my heart racing. Um, I kept thinking, you know, I hadn't missed any tests. You know, why would they even want to talk to me? Mm. And so we called them back instantly. Um, I remember sitting on like the couch in his room and there was, I think, two other staff members in there with us. And 
she instantly, as soon as she started talking, she said that um, they had found something prohibitive in my system. And I remember my, my mind and my brain just instantly and, and my heart just breaking. Um, mm. Everything kind of just fell away. I I guess I didn't even feel like I was consciously listening because I was so, mm. I was still trying to comprehend the fact she'd even just said those words. Mm. Um, I never thought in a million years that anything like that would ever happen to me, let alone anybody I know. And so, yeah, I was just a mess. I remember crying consistently, trying to listen to what she was saying, trying to hear, you know, even the substance that she said, I couldn't even comprehend what she had said mm. when someone asked me, um, like, you know, my doctor was talking about it after when we spoke to him and I just said, well, the only thing I remember is she said dihoxy something. So I had completely gotten the wrong substance itself out of what she'd said because I wasn't able to actually, I guess, comprehend what she was saying from the start. And then she also said that I would have to immediately be put on a um, prohibitive sus- suspension so, uh, you know, while they're figuring things out, I'm on suspension, which means I can't stay with the team and I have to go home um, immediately. So during that time, obviously, yeah, I'm a mess. Um, everyone was kind of like caught off guard, no idea what's really going to happen. None mm. of us knew what was going to happen next. All we knew was that they had to get me out of there um, because I was no mm. longer allowed to be there anymore. Being the hardest part of that day was actually calling my family and my mm. partner um, those are probably the two of the hardest calls I've ever had to make. Sorry. Um, yeah, those two calls were, um, too hard for me to even do. So, um, Mm. Dean got pulled into the room because, you know, I wanted him to be there for me. Um, and you know, he was good to have at that time. He's exactly what I needed. Um, you know, he Mm. turned to me and said, Shana, we're going to get through this. You know, we're going to beat this. This is not true. We know you didn't do anything wrong you know, keep your head high and we're going to get through this. I mean, that's exactly what I needed to hear from him. And, you know, he, he stepped up as my supporter during that time because obviously my parents weren't there. My partner was, you know, back home. Um, and he was the one who actually made the call to my family. Um, and I was just, you know, in the corner, um, couldn't really breathe and, and it struggled. I struggled even more just listening to him tell them, Again, my mom went into Fatima and my dad, you know, they all just instantly switched on and went, what do we do next? What do we do now? And, you know, I think my partner, he couldn't even, you know, he's a hockey player and he was like completely caught off guard because, again, he knows that I didn't do anything wrong and he knows that we're completely clean and everything that we do on a day-to-day basis in our lives. Um, So he was in complete shock and and he honestly didn't know what to say or do because he knew that nothing could make me feel better at that point. So that call, I guess took a while and then Dean and I went for about an eight kilometer walk until I was tired enough to at least try to oh, gosh, sleep. Yeah. Um, we just kept walking and walking and talking and he just tried to keep me a bit distracted. I wasn't allowed to tell the group what had happened so I couldn't actually talk to anybody and I just told them to tell it was, tell the squad and everyone that I was leaving for personal reasons. So obviously everyone jumped on board and wanted to support me and message me and everything like that, which was so beautiful. But again, I felt like crap because I couldn't actually tell them what was happening mm. and I couldn't actually lean on them even though they were all trying to give me the support. So it was a very difficult, I guess, day. And then the next morning I um, caught a three-hour train back to Japan and then, I mean, sorry, Tokyo, and then caught the plane home from Tokyo to Brisbane to see my family and they were at the airport and again that was probably 
a hard moment, just seeing them and instantly breaking down was a very tough moment. They are the words that no swimmer or no athlete wants to hear. It's it's like a nightmare, isn't it, to hear those words for an athlete that you've tested positive? It's a nightmare in itself, but it's also so unexpected because, you know, as a swimmer myself and as I see how hard other swimmers in Australia work and how much we are tested and how much we are diligent mm. with what we do and what we take, it's also so unexpected to hear those words. You know, you would never think that any athlete would test positive within the Australian swimming community because of how, you know, how much we're tested, how much we are on top of all of our supplements and checking that we're, you know, not taking anything that is banned. So again, like anyone who did find out about my situation and when it came out, no one believed it, you know, in the swimming community, they, they all knew that this is not true because one, they know me and two, they know that no athlete could actually or actually would do that um, in swimming. When did you realise that the media knew? Um, so during the time that I'd come home, I was working close with Swimming Australia to actually put together a statement that I wanted to release. Um, mm-hmm. so I wanted to get on the front foot and tell everyone and, and be completely open and honest about everything. Um, obviously there was other things going on with Swimming Australia because of the, um, situation with Mac Horton as well mm-hmm. that was coming out at the same time. So, you know, they were quite busy. It was a tricky situation, I guess, for them when it came to actually giving me the support I needed when it came to speaking out about it and actually giving a statement out. So I wanted to make sure that everyone was on the same page. I wanted to make Mm -hmm. sure that everyone was happy with what I was saying and I wasn't upsetting anyone, but I did want to get on the front foot and be the first person to say anything. Mm. And unfortunately that was taken away from me. I got the warning about it. I got told, my lawyer rang me and said, Hey, like I've just gotten a call from a reporter they know about your situation. They just want a statement. So I actually sent them my statement that I was mm-hmm. going to release. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of, that that part was planned and I knew exactly what time that was coming out. So when that posted, I was going to post at the exact same time to yep. ensure that there was that alignment. And then not only with that one being a surprise, you know, I was sitting down at home watching TV, I believe, um, on my phone and I get a message saying, Oh, sorry, I get a, someone commented on one of my previous posts saying that I'm a drug cheat and I should mm. kill myself. And, oh, and that was wow. the first, that was the first, I guess, oh my God, what, how does this person, why is this person saying this? Um, mm. And yeah, that was, it got released early. So another company had obviously gotten hold of it and released it on their six o'clock news and then it was everywhere. So as soon as that happened, I instantly posted my statement, but again, it doesn't take away from the, I guess, that shock um, and that emotion that kind of runs through you when someone does say something like that and you're completely caught off guard. And I guess for me it was scary because that was, I guess, someone's first reaction. Um, I didn't, Yeah. I guess I was quite naive, naive and I guess I was 20 at the time, but I didn't think everybody would just think I'm a drug cheat. <laughs> mm. I didn't think after spending my whole life swimming, and my whole life trying to represent my country and do it proud that people would just turn around and and just assume the worst without any knowledge or any awareness of what I do and how I do it and and the passion I have behind my sport and the love I have behind my sport. You know, something like that is not who I am and, and it's not in my mm-hmm. character and it's not in my standards at all. So for people to kind of just think that they can come and attack me and, and harass me on social media 
you know, I struggled a lot with that from the beginning. Mm. What was it like? Was it right from then? Other people saying bad stuff like that? Yeah. (laughs) My, when I, when I made my post, um, I think it was just, I had, I think over thousands of comments. Um, I wasn't really watching it and that was, you know, my partner and family were very strict on ensuring that I didn't kind of watch it, but there was thousands of messages and, and posts and stuff that were good and bad. Um, the hard part was probably, you know, as I got better, like as I, I guess things kind of died down a little bit and I started going back on social media, it was more the things that just randomly would pop up, you know, someone posting a photo and making a joke about me or, you know, there was a web page that was practically like slamming my family and I, um, and then, you know, you'd randomly get comments of people on, on social media and you just, you just, it just is so, I've never been on that spectrum, I guess. I've never felt negativity on social media before. And so that was my first experience. And I guess it was quite a big influx of negativity. Um, so I was just grateful that I did have the right support systems around me to ensure that I didn't take on board a lot of the things that people were saying. And and as I said, I was pretty clear with myself. I knew who I was. I knew that I didn't do anything wrong. So why should I take somebody else's opinion into account when they don't know me? Yeah. Yeah. And did you know that? Or is that just in retrospect? Was that, did you have that point of view when you were there? Because you I were did, only yeah. 20. No, I I, um, I did have that retrospection from the beginning. I had told myself like, you know, that I, people are going to potentially assume the worst. I didn't think it would be that bad. Um but you know, there's no one's no one. There's always people who are just going to tell you the opposite. You know, you might argue with them or tell you something, and they're always going to be the people that are just going to be the negatives and and go the complete opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I knew that was kind of going to kind of going to happen, and I knew that I had to believe in myself. And even getting through this process, you know, from the beginning, I had to just say to myself, like, I know who I am. I know yeah. I didn't do any of this. I didn't do this to myself, my country, or my sport. Mm. So why should I let a company dictate my ban, I guess, in the way, you know, yeah. why should I let a company tell me that I'm a drug cheat when I know I'm not? Mm. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, that's just what you are at the beginning. At the beginning, you're damned guilty. So I wasn't going to An automatic four-year so ban, no matter what, yes. no matter how much, yeah. no matter reasons, automatic four-year ban no, to cover that max, Olympic yeah, cycle. four-year ban unless you fight it and actually um, prove non-intent. And it's up to you to prove it. It's up to you to find it. It's up to you to absolutely do everything in, revo- in regards to your case. And I guess now I can understand why so many people just don't fight it. You had a four-year ban. It's up to you um, for the onus to be on you to prove yourself innocent. How did you go about that? What were the next steps in that fight? So um, I tried to get as much support around me in order to actually understand what I had to do. So that was probably one of the difficult aspects of this process is that no one tells you the steps of the process. No one tells you what you've got to do in regards to proving your innocence or no one tells you what to do in in regards to actually proving non-intent. So I was kind of going in blind and so was my family. And I guess in the end, because of the rules that Swimming Australia was around, there was a very little lack of support from that realm as well, which Mm. was really difficult to deal with. So they did help my mum in regards to getting in contact with a sports lawyer. But unfortunately, you know, throughout our process, we found out, you know, we found that quite difficult as well in regards to using that lawyer. Um, So again, in the end, we had to go our own path and find our own way around ensuring that I got the best out of it. 
So I can't thank my parents and my brothers and my partner enough. You know, they were my team and also my management team in the end. They were the people that got me through, you know. Um, They were the ones that found me the lawyers that I needed, got me talking to the right doctors, got me talking and getting my hair tested, getting certain things done. You know, my mum was picking up everything that potentially was a new, I guess, a new routine or something that I hadn't done previously Mm. that could be a possibility. So we were getting those tested. You know, whether it be I went to a massage place and they used an oil, let's find out what oil that is, Mm. let's go get it tested. You know, I had a tea, let's get that tested to make sure it's clean. Um, So she was really diving deep into like kind of my movements and what was different in my life because we had no idea the time period, we had no Mm. idea the concentration level, we didn't know the possibilities because, you know, Sports Integrity Australia didn't, I guess, give us any information about the drug itself. Mm. We had to do all of our research on our own, which was a really scary situation to be mm. in um, because there's so much room for not finding enough information or going down the wrong path and going a completely wrong way. Your nail so, polishes you got tested as well? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, as you can see, I always get my nails done. Um, yeah. And I guess I used a new nail clinic and actually went to a different place. So we were like, well, is that a potential? So I ran there and was like, hey, can I please take, can I please get A, B, C and D? I can mm. buy them from you and I want to get them tested. And yeah. again, it was always being beaten down away as well because people weren't willing to give you things. Um, yeah, that's tough. You can't yeah. just go to a nails place and ask for their stuff and think they're going to give it to you. So yeah. the best that they could do for me was tell me where it's manufactured. But, you know, in the end, you, the next bottle you test might be clean, but the bottle they used on that date might not have been. Yeah, yeah. You got your hair tested as well? Yeah, so we paid for my hair to be tested. Um, so that got, you know, even that was a traumatic process to go through. Like I'm not someone who I guess has been in a situation where someone has to cut six chunks out of your hair. Mm. And, you know, they're not thin chunks either. They're like <laughs> quite big. Yeah. Yeah, it was a massive process and we just kept chipping away the whole time about what we can do, what we can control. Um, there was a lot of aspects we couldn't control, as I said, I wanted my concentration level. I think we asked for it about six times and they, you know, they didn't have to give it to me um, based on their rules. They don't have to give me access to anything. Um, so you didn't so, know if this was a big mount or a tiny mount? You didn't know what you were doing Not from the beginning, no. No, mm. not from the beginning. Um, we only found that out once my hair was tested mm-hmm. because it didn't actually show up in my hair. So the fact that it didn't show up at all shows to us that there's no... There's no long-term use, so it proves that I Mm. wasn't taking this regularly. Mm. And it also proved to us that there was no spike for that one instance that actually tested positive. So it was so minute, it didn't show off my hair. Mm. Um, That was our understanding of it. So that was where we kind of went, okay, well, this means that it's it's a contamination. It is Mm. physically not something that I've taken myself, so I physically have not put it into my body you know, I haven't made this choice. It is a contamination of some sort and we need to kind of look from a contamination point of view. You just had to work all this out yourself, how to go about it, how yes. to go prove it. You just had to yes. work. It's unbelievable. Tra- so it was Legandrol that you tested um, positive Correct. for. Travis Tigart is the CEO of the US Anti-Doping Agency and famously brought down Lance Armstrong. He was the man mm. that helped bring down Lance Armstrong and he was one of your biggest supporters in this and he quote <laughs> is to quote him he said you have to be a fool to test positive to legandrol because it's so easy to te- detect so that in itself told him that this was not intentional that 
four-year ban, what did that mean for people, that be, to, to be banned? Just take us through what that meant for you and the restrictions that we you had. Yeah. So for me, um, not only would it mean that it'd be the end of my career, um, even though I was 20 at the time, it still means that I'm four years out of the water, which for any swimmer, it's the end of your career. Um, potentially for other sports might be different, but for a swimmer, if you have that long out of the pool, there is very, very, very little chance that you're going to make it back um, unless you've continued to swim yourself. Um, it would just be tough. It would just be such a nightmare because you're kind of mm. holding on to something that potentially is slipping through your fingers every day. Um, and that's kind of how I felt even in my two-year period. I felt like I was losing that part of me every single day. Mm. You know, every day I was having out of the water, I was losing that part of me and I, and I hated it. I really, really resented that I couldn't be part of my swimming community anymore. So not only would it mean that my swimming crew would over, be over, I couldn't coach, um, which I actually love coaching. So I coach um, on a platform called um, Playbook Coach. So mm-hmm. I get access to young boys and girls who are looking for private coaching or anything like that or private mentoring. So I do a lot of the mentoring side of things. And if I was going through this through this band, I couldn't do any of that. Um, mm. so, you know, that's another aspect that I really, really enjoyed about my life because it brought me that joy and brought me that positivity, mm. you know, completely taken away from me. Um, my uni, um, I was studying, um, marketing and management at Griffith uni. Um, and I actually was going to be starting an internship with swimming Australia, um, and other sport, sporting organizations because I wanted to work in sport. And because of the rules I was under, I wasn't allowed to do those. So I had to actually defer my uni. Mm. So, you know, not only was I, it was impacting my sporting life, it was also impacting my education. I wasn't allowed to play any sport. So I wanted to go and play club netball just to stay involved with people, just to make sure I was talking and being mm. social and getting myself out of the house. Um, you couldn't do that. I wasn't allowed to be in those environments at all. So I, I think based on the rules, it's you're not allowed to participate in any ASADA or sports integrity sports. So mm. that's practically every sport in Australia. Mm. So there were so many different obstacle courses that were putting in my way and it really ostracized me from a world that I'd lived in for a very, mm. like since I was practically a young girl, mm. my whole world was around sport being healthy, being outdoors, being social. And, you know, it felt very, very isolating because I was sometimes scared to leave my house because of the media that had been kind of that, Mm. I guess that media trauma that I'd been through, like I'd Mm -hmm. had, you know, cameras at my house. I'd had people standing at my door just to take photos or or just to like get an interview, but they didn't actually knock. So you just feel Mm. so unsafe all the time. And for me to just Mm. leave the house sometimes was a challenge. So I just, yeah, I just had to keep trying to find things that did actually make me happy and try and find things that I could control because there was a lot of things that were out of my control. Did you continue to swim? Um, I did at the start. Um, I did quite regularly at the start. um, By yourself? Because I thought, yes, by myself. So I'm not allowed to train with a club. Um, I'm not allowed to train when there's a club in the area. So I'm only allowed to train at non-accredited pools and also make sure that there's no squads there when I'm training. So my training time, oh my um, I guess, block, you could train between about 7 a.m. and 3 p.m. Mm. But as I started to, I guess, have to start to work again and start to get a job, I sometimes couldn't even make it to the pool by 3 p.m. So yeah. I would miss out on training. Um, yeah, and, and, and unfortunately it got to a point where the longer this case got dragged out, the more resentful I actually was towards swimming. 
Yeah. Um, you know, at the beginning of this process, I was told that it was going to take six to nine months. So I was like, cool, I can get through this. I can, you know, beat this process, make sure that I'm back in, in the pool as soon as it's done. And then it got dragged out and I was told it was going to be nine to a year. And then obviously I finished it about two years and three months. So mm. completely blindsided by a timeline that was inaccurate. So for me, it was like I, I wanted to train and I did still love swimming at the start, but I could see myself slipping. You know, I would go to the pool mm. and feel good and then I would come home and be, you know, crying. I would be angry. I would just be so mm. hateful to the world and I didn't like the way it made me feel. You know, mm. in the end, unfortunately, swimming started to make me feel like a toxic person that didn't feel good about myself because, yeah, I would I would bring up all that trauma. It would bring up the fact that mm. I'm not with my squad, that I can't even go see my coach, that I you know, I couldn't compete anymore, that Olympics was around the corner at the time and I wasn't training. All mm. of those things were just so hard for my mind to comprehend, knowing that I did nothing wrong. Mm. Did you have, were people reaching out to you? Were you old teammates and squad members reaching out to you? They did. Um, and a lot of people, you know, would come and visit me, um, especially at the beginning. But unfortunately, I guess I'll, for a lot of the time, people forget that it continues on for me. It doesn't just go mm. away. Yeah. Um, and you know, my friends and, and everyone did the best that they could I, at the time. Um, but they kind of forget that I didn't, I was never going to move on from it because I was still mm. going through it. So I think sometimes people forgot that I was still living a nightmare every day. So that mm. trauma and that sadness, um, continued, you know, every day. And they sometimes I guess would forget cause that trauma of the media and everything kind of had stopped. But you were living it. You were still living so, it. Yeah. So sometimes I would go out and about and go to potentially my partner's hockey and everyone would ask me how my case is going. And I hated that. <laughs> I mm. hated the fact that all anybody ever spoke about with me was my case. Um, I, they completely forgot that I was still a person um, sometimes and not mm. that they weren't, weren't doing the right thing. They were just trying to, you know, mm. I guess ask and be there for me. But sometimes I wanted to forget that I was even involved in this mm. nightmare. And it sometimes felt horrible, the fact that I had to keep talking about my case with everybody and, and talking and telling them that this is what's happening and it's still going and, you know, I still, you know, I'm still sad. And, and so sometimes it actually drove me deeper into wanting to not leave mm. the house. Um, towards the end of my first appeal, I wasn't really going to, going out at all. I didn't like the feeling that it made me feel when I would go out and and all I'd be talked to about is my case or mm. people, you know, randoms would stop me and talk about my case. And that is completely fine. I love the fact that I had so much support at times, but mm. it completely for me made me forget about the person I am because mm. in the end I was being defined by my case and and I struggled a fair bit with that. Let's talk about your case because you did fight it at the Court of Arbitration for Sport um, and it was found in, in your favour and they cut your ban to two years. The expert report from Sport Integrity Australia, this is from Sport Integrity Australia who was bringing the case against <laughs> you, said that the amount ingested was pharmacolo pharmacologically irrelevant. What did that mean? And how did that support your case? Their own evidence <laughs> end up supporting your case. Yeah, as soon as I heard that, we kind of knew that there's no way that they could win. You cannot be a drug cheat and have a and have a find a sample in them that is pharmaceutically irrelevant because in then that means that that had no effect on me. I wasn't enhanced in any way, shape, or form 
to benefit my performance, to benefit my training, to benefit my recovery. Nothing was benefited by mm. this irrelevant amount. So, you know, even in our second court of arbitration, one of the arbitrators, so we had three arbitrators, one of them actually was like, hang on a second, how does that make her a drug cheat then? If it's mm. pharmaceutically irrelevant, how is she cheating? And that was a very good point to me. I'm seeing mm. there like finally someone is thinking yeah. logically. Mm. You know, this whole process is forgetting about the human element behind it and they think about, you know, all these facts and all this stuff and I get that Sports Integrity Australia and WADA have a job. They have a job to protect athletes from drug cheats and I completely respect that. But they knew I was innocent. They knew I didn't mm. do anything wrong. And they were still putting me through a process like this. And that was probably a very difficult thing for me to actually accept because I thought, why are they doing it? That was a big question mm. for me was why were they taking me through this process that took so long? And then they appealed it again. And I thought, I don't, I couldn't understand and no one was answering questions. And then obviously you would see things in the media and think that doesn't make any sense. So again, it's a very confusing process to go through that your mind just gets so caught up in. But for me to have someone, you know, say that it's pharmaceutically irrelevant, it was such a breath of fresh air because mm. I didn't know the amount that was in my system, still don't to this day. But knowing that it had no effect on my body for me just goes, I told you so. But why? Imagine if they release that initially. Imagine the the damage to your reputation, the headlines. I mean, the trolling, the backlash, everything. Imagine that all could have been avoided if they'd said yeah. that at the start. That it's a minute amount that we found in mm -hmm. the system, and the expert report says that it was pharmacologically or pharmaceutically irrelevant. Imagine that could have all been avoided. There could have been a different process that I could have gone through completely. For me, mm. you know, from the beginning, my assumption is that they knew that there was a very, very low amount. You know, mm. that was my assumption that they would have known that from the beginning. And I understand they have a process to go through, but mm. I think that if a, if a person is testing to something that is so minute that it's pharmaceutically relevant, they should not go through a process that Lance Armstrong had to go through as well. You know, I was treated just as bad as Lance Armstrong was when it comes to this process. And you think there's a problem in itself right there. There should, there needs to be a difference in, you know, if it's, you know, flagging, if it's a, an irrelevant amount and a pharmaceutically irrelevant amount, you know, there needs to be a process that's different to, I guess, you're guilty because it's, yeah, it's just, it's a very, very, it's a traumatic process. You know, mm. I'm still having to do work now with a psychologist to ensure that I can move on mm. from that process. You know, there's still things that upset me and still trigger me. And, you know, even getting drug tested now, mm. um, it's still one of those things that I know I'm still not doing anything wrong and I would never do anything mm. like that. But it's still a fear because it happened once. Yeah. What stops it from happening again? Yeah. And has to be said as well, the arbitrator in your first um, case also said that you were one of the most impressive witnesses that he's ever seen in his career and he described you as honest, genuine and straightforward. They cut your suspension to two years um, and that was a, a huge vindication. And you mentioned before about about this, the system. You had support, as I said, from Travis Tiger, the CEO of of um, ASADA, um, USADA, US Anti-Doping Agency, and he's talked about this, how they're kind of identifying and and almost trapping 
innocent athletes for these minute amounts. And in the US, am I not wrong, for minute amounts, they don't get that blanket suspension anymore. Am I right in that? Correct. So a lot of the cases we've recently seen, um, the process is done within six months and the athlete is back to training. So, you know, I was seeing those kind of cases and thinking, well, I haven't done anything wrong either. So as soon as my case has come to the court of arbitration, I'll be let off as well. That was my, again, naive Mm. thinking, thinking that this process was going to be fair. And I guess because I didn't even get to the cast till after one year, I was already in this mindset of, you know, this is not a fair system. Um, Mm. They haven't treated me right from the beginning, so what's going to be any different now? Um, And we had actually communicated with Travis Tigart at one point because we wanted to use him as someone who could educate on on behalf of me in in my cast and talk about the the processes that are happening over in America. But unfortunately, due to his position and due to, you know, ensuring that he had no bias, um, he wasn't able to participate. But um you know, I obviously I loved the support that I get that I got, and I, I really appreciated what Alan Sullivan had said about me after my, you know, mm-hmm. my cast because that was probably one of you know the hardest days that I had to do being interrogated and being you know put on the spot constantly, feeling like someone mm-hmm. is attacking you and ripping your career to shreds. You know, my whole career was just being torn to shreds in a way that was mm-hmm. wrong. They would talk about me and say something about me and I would think, well, you've you've completely taken that out of context and made it seem like I'm this horrible athlete and I'm the complete mm. opposite. So it was really hard for me to sit there and my family to sit there and just listen to people say horrible things about you mm. and not be able to defend yourself very much. Mm. You know, a lot of the times you were being questioned but you couldn't freely speak. You know, I mm. couldn't freely be like, you know, this is who I am. This is what I do. I don't do these kind of things. You've got this wrong. Mm. You know, I couldn't actually explain myself. It was all under questioning that Sports Integrity Australia had strategically planned. Mm. And we should say, you know, for minute amounts for Legandro, I mean, that can be contaminated in in supplements, um, unprotected sex as well is one way it can come in, meat contamination. These are how you know, these minute amounts, it's possible for people to get them in their system. Yeah. And they've even tested supplements where one scoop has Legandrol, but the next scoop doesn't, next traces. Doesn't. Yeah. So mm-hmm. this is, this is, I just want to make it clear that this is how easy, you know, these substances can get in your system. Um, and even environmental contamination. So that was actually with my case, the... What does that um, mean? So environmental contamination is using gyms and, you know, someone's sweating mm. on gyms and then using the equipment straight after, um, using wow. public toilets, you know, it's anything that has contact with bodily fluids. Mm. So as you said, you know, unprotected sex and those kind of things, that's um, a situation that happened overseas. Um, you know, they definitely did look into it because I have a partner, but in the end we completely scrubbed that one out because of the fact that he is also an elite athlete. Mm. He is someone who is very, very strict on the way he eats, the way he do, does things and ensures that he is clean as well because we both live a very strict ensuring mm. we don't test positive um, because we're both really professional about it. So, you know, when they brought, I guess, that situation up, I was really defensive of that because I knew that my partner was definitely not the cause of it mm. um, and I was always going to protect him mm. um, because I knew that if he had done it, he would have been the first one standing up and saying that he had to make mm. sure that I didn't have to go through something like this. Um, and I've, as you said, also protein contamination is, is a big one, which 
to Sports Integrity's uh, Australia's education system, they do talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. They do talk about that protein contamination being a risk. Um, so they do warn athletes about, you know, taking proteins. You are putting yourself at risk because of that. You know, one scoop can be clean, one scoop can't be. But unfortunately, they don't talk too much about that, you know, that environmental contamination mm. and that, you know, smoothies, all those little things that you don't even mm. think about sometimes are potential chances of you being testing positive and losing your career. So Sport Integrity, the, the case it when it went to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, um, uh, it gave you, it cut your ban from four years to two. But then Sport Integrity Australia appealed that. They wanted that blanket four-year ban. You had to go through that all over again. And then just a few months ago, the appeal went to court and the appeal was then thrown out. Describe to me that feeling of it all being over. Um, it was like, I guess, when they did appeal, it was a bit touch and go because I couldn't afford to go through it again. Um, you know, at that point, I had spent $130,000 um, no. before that appeal and that was actually my life savings that I had been saving up for a house. So for me, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was really proud of myself for having that savings. And in in the end, I'm actually grateful for that savings because in the end, that was the reason I could fight the first um, process. Um, but when they appealed, I kind of felt trapped. That was probably the closest I came to qu- completely quitting because I thought, well, I can't afford it. Um, they wanted to give me four years and I felt like, well, I already fought them once and won to get two years. Now they're going again. You know, why are they going again unless they know they can try and win? You know, that, mm. so for me it was like I'm going up against these massive organisations that I felt like I could not beat. So I felt very trapped and I felt like I couldn't keep going. Um, you know, they appealed one of the four years, wanted me to pay for the whole process and, yeah, I felt like I couldn't go anywhere from there because if I couldn't afford it, I get four years anyways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I spoke to my parents and everyone and, and they always, they, they said, well, you've come this far, you can't give up now. Like no, if you give so up, close. they win. So my only option at that point was to ask people to actually help, um, which was really mm. difficult for me because I, I don't like feeling like I need help, I guess. Yeah. I, don't like, I don't like that feeling of, you know, I guess asking for people's money. And I can't express how grateful I am the fact that so many people got behind me and actually funded my case. Mm. Um, I cannot thank those people enough because I am swimming today because of them. Yeah. Um, and I'm swimming today, you know, to represent them as well. So I hope that I do them proud. But um, yeah, I, I getting to that end and getting that call. So as you said, as you even talked about, it was a Thursday night. Um, <laughs> I had gotten home from training, so I did train that night and I was actually in the shower and my partner was out and he he was like, oh, Tim's calling. So my lawyer, Tim Fuller from Gaydon's mm. law firm, he was calling and it was seven o'clock at night. So I was like, this is it. Like this is him calling and telling me the news because he doesn't usually call at seven o'clock at night if it's just <laughs> to do with other stuff. Um, so I asked my partner to answer because I, I just wasn't, you know, I didn't know what yeah. to expect. So my, my partner answered and he just lit up. He just started smiling. And, um, and I, I knew instantly as soon as I saw him yeah. smiling and I saw him, um, you know, getting all cheery, I knew that it was over. Like it was done. I'm allowed to swim again. And I was back doing what I wanted to do. And he got off the phone and just said, you're safe. You know, you're safe. <sighs> you're good. You can get to do what you love. You get to do what you want to do. Um, no one can take that away from you anymore. So that feeling was just, 
amazing. And even for him, you know, I think for him and my family, I instantly called my family and I called, I called Dean, I called Dean as well. It was super funny because I was calling Dean like 10 times. Um, and he happened to just, of course, be at a function that's about telling people to get off screens. But he wasn't answering his phone. So, oh, no. so he wouldn't he wouldn't answer his phone. And I was thinking, oh my God, of all the nights. So I was, you know, messaging his wife, being yeah. like, Dean needs to answer his phone. Um and you know, he I had a quick chat with him and, and he said, you know, this is it, let's go, you know, let's quit a mm. point, let's let your swimming do the talking, let's just go. No need to worry about this anymore. Um so it was a really, really big breath of fresh air. My body did definitely go into a bit of an emotional state for a bit. Oh, um, it yeah. kind of finally went from being protective all the time and being mm. on guard to just letting me feel and letting my emotions all out. So I probably had a good cry for about two weeks straight. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the way my psychologist kind of described it was for two and a, two years, I'd been defending myself and always on the always on protection mode, you know, always trying to protect myself and make sure that I was, you know, ready to fight in a way. Um, and now that it was finally over, my body was like, oh, thank God we can breathe. Mm. Um, and that's how it felt. It just felt like I'd finally come up for air after being kind of held underwater. Did that love for swimming come back? It has now. Um, it didn't come back straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you now, Olympics actually helped. <laughs> Yeah, it was actually interesting. Um, a lot of people thought watching the Olympics would be really tough. Um, I, I didn't sit there at a screen watching it twenty four seven, but you know, seeing the results and seeing how amazing they all did, and actually seeing the enjoyment that they were having, it ignited that fire again for me. It just got me going. Well, that's what I want. I want to be there. I want to yeah. be with, there with those girls and boys um, and representing my country again. Um, in 2024. So knowing that they were kind of going to come back and join me on that quest, it was really, really nice to know that. You talked about that time being so isolating and the rules made it so isolating for you. But we've talked about the high profile support that you've had with Travis Tygaard and a number of other people. But um, another person that's always been in your corner um, is one of your old teammates, Kate Campbell. And she (laughs) sent through this message. Hey, Shana, it's Kate here. I just wanted to stop by and tell you a few of the things that I admire about you. I don't think we do this enough in general. I can still remember when you walked into the pool for the first time as this young 17-year-old. And what struck me about you and what you have kept throughout everything over the past couple of years is this true sense of self. You have remained completely your own person. And you are unapologetic about that. And it's something that I admire so, so much about you. And then I watched you grow and change over the next couple of years and saw you become a more true, more whole, more solid person within that self. And I saw you rise to every challenge that you were faced with. And then the world gave you a walloping. And I didn't just hit you once. It hit you again and again and again. And through it all, you didn't fall down. You didn't even just stand there. You fought back. (laughs) And you remained yourself and you put your shoulders back and lifted up your chin and there was this fire in your eyes and you said, here I am. This is me and I am not going to take this lying down. 
you kind of reminded me of a Marvel superhero. You know, when they're just completely outnumbered by the forces of evil or the baddies or and you just think that this fight is completely hopeless. And yet at the end, they're the ones that emerge victorious and they emerge victorious because they stay true to themselves and they fight from a place of centered security. And I feel like that's what you've done. You have gone through everything and you have made it out as the victor, as the winner. And if this is your superhero part one, I cannot wait to see what the sequel to this movie will be because you have an incredible road ahead of you and I cannot wait to watch every single second of it. Oh, my God, that is so beautiful. Oh, I'm crying like a baby. (laughs) She's right, though. (laughs) You did put your shoulders back. You did have a sense of self and you fought it, Shana. And it's, it's a part of your story, but it won't define you because you've got so much great stuff ahead of you. Thank you. So many competitions so ahead of you. Thank you so much for organising that. That is so beautiful. <laughs> she's pretty special, Kate. She's a really oh, special she's, person. She's been amazing, honestly. I and, and obviously she talks a lot about me having that strength, but I couldn't have done a lot of it without her. You know, the amount of times I just call her out of the blue and just need her advice and her mentoring. And she went above and beyond to make sure that, you know, I was getting the advice that I needed from her. And, you know, she's been through her own ups and downs and her massive challenges through her swimming career as well Mm. and through her life. Um, And so to have someone like that in my corner, you know, meant the world to me throughout, you know, it didn't even need to be publicized. And yet, she again went above and beyond and was quite happy to come out and publicize that she's backing me. And for Mm. someone to do that and have the, I guess, the status she has in the public eye, um, yeah, there's no words that can describe how grateful I have been for her support and mentoring throughout this period and and just her friendship. Um, Mm. As you can see, she's just an amazing, Mm. beautiful soul that really does care deeply about her um, friends, family and and just the general community. so I'm eternally grateful for her. Has this made you tougher? Has this made the fight <laughs> intensify and the fire well, burn even brighter <laughs> inside of you um, now? Yes, yes. So I know I am. And, um, you know, as I said from the beginning, I guess I was a bit naive as a 20-year-old, but um, I am so insightful and I guess wise at 23 years old now. Um, I'm so ready to show the world, I guess, what I'm made of. And, and the thing that gets Dean and I really excited is watching me train now. It's just different. Um, you know, in the past, potentially I might be hurting and you can kind of see that mentality take over where you might, you know, give up a little bit and, and not push as hard. Whereas now I kind of, I relish in that pain because mm. I think, well, this is pain that I'm choosing to, to inflict on myself through training. But the pain that I went through, I didn't choose. I had no control over and it mm. was a very, very horrible place to be in. Um, so for me, when I start to feel that pain, you can kind of see me go, all right, let's go. And I kind of pick up my pace. Um, mm. So I really actually enjoy seeing what I'm capable of now and, and just seeing how tough I am. Um, it's actually been a really, really good experience um, being back and, and having my teammates and, and Dean um, backing me the all, all the way. Do you wipe down everything? Do you um, avoid public spaces? Do you not touch things? Are you you super vigilant now? Like we're all vigilant after 2020, 2021, mm. but I could imagine after yeah. what happened to you, you'd be like, I don't want to touch a surface that someone else has touched ever. 
Yeah, so it is a scary situation. And as I said, again, even with like, you know, the uh, the doping control officers that come to my house and test me um, randomly, it's a fact that I never really found out where it truly came from. Mm. Yes, we have pro- possibilities and potential places or, you know, um, but for me it's like it's haunting still. You know, I don't know where it came from. So, yeah, I carry my own water bottle. You know, I can be out and be so thirsty and someone can offer me a drink and I will refuse to take it. Um, mm. You know, I try to avoid taking medication now, even if it's sometimes Panadol and Nurofen. I mm. just have learned so much stuff about different things that potentially are contaminated that you think, well, nothing's ever going to be safe. You know, eating out is not a safe place to be. Um, so I am really vigilant, but I'm also not going to make my life stop. I'm not going to stop myself from enjoying mm. things in life because sometimes the things that they've put in regards to things being risks and stuff like that, if you were actually to follow everything that they'd set out for you as a risk or actually what they expect from an athlete, they don't actually understand athletes because athletes are not robots. We don't sit there mm. and just train and come home and bubble wrap ourselves and not enjoy life. Like we still like to enjoy our lives and, and we love adventure still. So um, I'm not going to sit on the couch every day and and hide myself. I'm still going to enjoy things in life, but I am going to do everything I can do in my control to prevent things from happening to myself, ensure I can help other people as well by educating them as best as I can and, and talking mm. to them about things they do just to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else because nothing would break my heart more than to see another innocent athlete go through a process like mine and, you know, potentially not come out the other side. We finish off every podcast by asking our guests what they would ask <laughs> their 10-year-old self. And that's when that, you said at 10, that's when you knew that this is what you wanted to do. You wanted to swim. What would you go back and tell that little Shana? I guess kind of what Kate said. I would tell my 10-year-old self to stay true to herself, you know, never give up, never let anybody dictate or tell you who you are. Um, if you can look at yourself day in and day in the mirror and be proud of who you are, then you are doing exactly the right things um, and, and never apologize for that. Shana, it has been an absolute delight to talk to you. Um, and I wanted to do that because I, I wanted your story to be told and I want people to know the truth about, about what happened. But I also want people to get to know Shana Jack away from, away from what happened to you. Um, I agree with Kate. Part two is going to be so exciting and I cannot <laughs> wait to see what you Let's can do I'll, I'll and what you can Woman. achieve. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you can have your own costume. You, you deserve <laughs> your own costume there. But um, yeah, I can't wait for you to go on and, and achieve great things because I think you are. You're so strong. You know who you are. And um, yeah, and I think we can all take lessons from, from your story and, and from who you are. So thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story on On Her Game. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, you know, as, as you said, thank you for sharing my story and allowing people to just hear me and hear it from me. Um, you know, I, I think that's the best way to hear any news or any information is always straight from the horse's mouth. And, and again, thank you so much for um, touching base with Kate. Um, that was a really beautiful message <laughs> and nice touch for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Shana. On Her Game is presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. 
listener.